2: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Cecile Fobb. Cecile is Senior Research Fellow in Politics at All Souls College, Oxford. She's also Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Oxford. Her research is focused on central normative questions about justice, cosmopolitanism, and war. Her new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. Its title is Spying Through a Glass Darkly, The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. Now, on its face, spying and counterintelligence activities seem morally suspect. They tend to involve sneaking, deceiving, and manipulating, as well as various forms of betrayal, treachery, and disloyalty. But intelligence and counterintelligence operations are mainstays of any modern state. Should we conclude that these activities are wrong, but nonetheless necessary, given the realities of modern politics? Now, in Spying Through a Glass Darkly, Cecile Fob develops an intricate account of the morality of spying and counterintelligence activities. She argues that routine espionage activities are morally justified and even sometimes obligatory as a means to thwart violations of fundamental rights. However, she also argues that familiar forms of mass surveillance are unjustified. Now, as usual, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. But let's begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hello, Cecile. How are you? Hi, Bob.
1: I'm very well. Thank you. How are you?
2: Oh, I'm doing fine today. Um, it's really nice to talk to you. Um, but uh, we usually begin these interviews with uh, the author of a fabulous new book uh, speaking a little bit about herself. Can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Yes, of course. First of all, let me thank you for having me on the uh, on the program. I've looked forward to this you know, very much. So about myself, well, um, I'm a moral and political philosopher currently, as you said, at the University of Oxford. Um, as I'm sure uh, your listeners will have spotted by now and may know already I'm French, but I've lived in the United Kingdom for uh, 30 years, actually 30 years, in you know, a this year. So I first came over to do a master's degree at the University of York, then I moved to Oxford to do my doctorate under the supervision of Jerry Cohen, and then I've moved around the UK, you know, quite a bit until I came back to Oxford about 12 years ago. In you know, and now. Um, as you said, I've worked a lot on series of justice, cosmopolitanism, the ethics of war. I've also had um, a long standing interest in the, the rights that we have. Of our own body, and I'm now moving into slightly different you know, areas. I'm getting very interested in some of the ethical issues that arise from the protection of cultural heritage. Um, on a less serious note, the one that is entirely relevant to what we are going to talk about this afternoon, I'm a massive fan of crime and spy fiction, which is one of the reasons why I ended up writing a book uh, about the ethics of, uh, of espionage. I mean, the opportunity to read Le carre's novels and watch the Americans or um, the Bureau for work was just too good to pass up, really. <laughs>
2: You know, it's always I I find I've been doing this uh, podcast for over a decade. It's always interesting to hear that kind of thing from an author, like what the what the what the background is to the interest in the uh, the topic that the book was about. Um, Well, that that's fabulous. So um, uh, let's talk about the book. How's that?
1: That's perfect. Excellent.
2: (laughs) 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 So um, I I I suspect you get this kind of uh, sort of background question a lot. So. You know, like many political philosophers, I I myself, you know, uh, opened your book with a vague sense that some of the canonical um, political theorists, and I was thinking mainly of a sort of throwaway line and paragraph or two in Hobbes on, on the citizen. Um, uh, but you know, sometimes you get a um, in the in classical political philosophy, um, you get a, a sentence or two about spies <laughs> and what to do about them and whether they're needed and, you know, how to reward them and how to keep them loyal and all the rest. Um, but it wasn't until I got into the book that I realized um, how odd it is that the topic isn't more central, um, especially in contemporary political philosophy. Now, you know, as you know, that in the book, there is a literature about surveillance and technologies that uh, rob us of our privacy, allegedly. Um, but, you know, the, the, the practices of spying, uh, again, I, I suspect you're not alone in being a fan of spy novels and spy films. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of a puzzle that it's not more central to uh, what political philosophers are doing. So let's begin um, then maybe with uh, if you have thoughts about why <laughs> it might not be so central. But then I want to move very quickly Uh, into your opening analysis of these sort of three types of approaches that are more or less explicit, sometimes only implicit, in contemporary political philosophy um, about spying, the dirty hands, contractarian, and just war accounts. Uh, so, can you give us that background and then and then get us up and running? Excellent.
1: So, on the background, I mean, I have puzzled over why there is so little about espionage in contemporary political philosophy for years. Um, I mean, particularly in the last twenty years, which has witnessed an extraordinary revival in just war, you know theory and as we all know you know espionage is a handmaiden of war so I simply do not understand why you know philosophers of war haven't really thought seriously about espionage um, I suppose you know a, a partial and somewhat facetious you know answer to that question is that um, in in popular culture we perhaps tend to reduce espionage to James Bond and it doesn't seem very serious <laughs> you know to write scholarly articles about the ethics of James Bond Um, I'm not entirely sure whether there is a less facetious answer to the puzzle. Um, In any event um, I I realised having worked and written on the ethics of war for a long time that I I really had to scratch that philosophical intellectual hitch um, about espionage hence hence the book. Um, Now as as you say um, there are broadly three contemporary approaches, which, for the reasons I've just given, are not very well developed. Uh, The dirty hands approach, contractarianism, and uh, just war's theory. Um, Although they are not satisfactory, I want to stress that um, all three of them tell us something really important about the ethics of espionage. So they are worth investigating, you know, in their own right. So if we start You know, with a dirty hands approach, um, it might be helpful first to remind ourselves of what is a classic dirty hands scenario. So a dirty hands scenario is one in which an official, for example, the president um, of the United States or the British prime minister is presented quite official with a choice between two courses of action, both of which are morally unpalatable. Um and he chooses one of those courses of action. So in the classic case, for example, torturing a prisoner in order to find out where the dirty bomb you know is located. And in so doing, he dirties his hands. Um, and the reason he does that um, is that breaching, in this particular case, the moral prohibition on torture is not as bad as allowing hundreds of people to die, you know, at the hand of terrorists. And so, in the context of espionage, you know, we see or argue that intelligence officers dirty their hands to the extent that, as intelligence officers, they must choose between, for example, not lying not betraying, not blackmailing at the cost of being left in the dark, but on the other hand committing those acts as a means to procure and protect sensitive information about national security. And they choose to do the latter. So on the dirty hands view, they dirty their hands and they do so justifiably you know, for the sake of protecting lives, you know, by means of protecting information about national you know, security. Now, you know, on the face of it, it seems to be a very plausible characterization you know, of what happens. And in that sense, um, the dirty hands approach is insightful because it tells us that when we think about espionage from a normative point of view, we have to find a justification for tactics, courses of action which are morally unpalatable. I mean, the problem with the dirty hands approach, however, is that it does not allow for the possibility that the intelligence officer might, in fact, be acting entirely cleanly. So it seems to me that the presumption of the wrongfulness of, for example, deceiving or manipulating others can be lifted or overridden. And if that is the case, then the intelligence officer, to repeat, does not dirty his or her hands. And it seems to me that we have to be attuned to that possibility. So that is why I don't find the dirty hands approach entirely satisfactory. Does, does that make sense so far?
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Good.
1: And so the second approach that I discuss in the book is um, what I call, uh, in line with others, contractarian in you know, political morality. Now it's a little bit. Complicated to explain because um, contractarian political morality admits of many different variants. But uh, the, central, yes. the, the central claim, you know, is is this: um, at the bar of contractarian political morality, the right thing to do. Is defined by appeal to norms which rational and moral agents either consent to as a matter of fact or would consent to if they were aware of those facts or hypothetically, you know, consent to. So. To give you an example, on Hobbes' view of contractarian morality, the consent at issue is the consent of moral agents who realize that it is in their interest to entrust the state with the task of protecting them from internal and external threats. On Locke's view, the consent at issue is the consent of agents who realize that the only way to ensure that all are treated equally is to have each consent to the authority of the sovereign. Now, there is a tradition um, within just war theory, which constructs the morality of war along contractarian line. And there is also a little bit you know, of a tradition in the ethics of espionage, which does the same. So, for example, if we go back to Hobbes' view, the thought here is this. It is in the interest of intelligence professionals and the masters whom they serve to abide by certain norms of conduct when they carry out espionage activities. They either, as a matter of fact, do consent or ought to consent to those norms, and they common agreement on those norms is what gives us, you know, a moral framework for espionage, you know, activities. Um, And, you know, a relevantly similar argument can be made about espionage on Lockean grounds. Um, Now, again, um, there is something interesting about contractarian political morality, you know, in the context of espionage, it is the kind of framework which, as far as I can tell, is the most often deployed by uh, intelligence officers who have thought and reflected on the ethics of their profession. So another way to put the point is that, as far as I can make out, um, the professional ethics of espionage is very much articulated along contactarian lines. And although I do not myself subscribe to contractarian political morality, and I'll explain why in a a second, it seems to me that in this field as... You know, in the realm more widely of war ethics, or indeed police ethics, which is you know similar. It's important to be aware of the ways in which the professionals you know think, um, if only because one has a better chance of being listened to, you know, by them if one shows that one is aware, you know, of the philosophical uh, assumptions, you know, on the basis of which you know they conduct, you know, their work. Um, That said, as I noted a moment ago, and I'm not, you know, a a proponent, you know, of um, contractarian political morality, you know, for a number of reasons, I mean, let me, you know, highlight two, really. Um, First of all, I mean, to be honest, you know, the fact that some political communities and intelligence professionals have developed, you know, shared understandings of what count as acceptable and unacceptable, espionage practices. And the fact that they consent to those understandings, it seems to me, does very little to show that those practices in fact are morally acceptable. So for example, you know, in a given political context, you know, the practice of using honey traps to blackmail enemy agents into betraying their country might be regarded as wholly acceptable. By an intelligence service, yet condemned, you know, by another. So, you know, to illustrate this particular example more, you know, precisely, um, in the course of writing the book, I mean, I, I read, you know, vast quantities of empirical materials, and in particular, the uh, autobiography of Marcus Wolf, who was one of the highest-ranking intelligence officers of um, uh, the former Democratic Republic of Germany, and it's absolutely clear in the autobiography that he sees nothing problematic to the use of funny traps and that he's not alone in endorsing the practice in his intelligence communities. Uh, At the same time, I have had former officers of British intelligence agencies swear to me that it is absolutely not part of shadowed understandings standings within the British intelligence communities, you know, to use honey traps. So I mean it seems to me that you know contractual morality we need to have a better grounding for its claim that there is, you know, consent um, on some of the norms, you know, at issue. Um my second main objection, in a way, you know, is, is related you know, to this. Um, you know, very quickly, um, contractarians will have to accept that there are norms of conduct which are valid irrespective of whether or not intelligence professionals and the citizens on whose behalf they act agree to those norms or not. Um, and as soon as they make that concession, it seems to me that the game is up. Um, because then one, have to, one has to wonder whether you know, the notion of the contract, and much more deeply, appeals to consent on which contract in theory rests, does any work at all you know, to get us to understand what it is that intelligence professionals are permitted or obliged you know, to do.
2: And that's a that's a more ge- I mean there's a um yeah you know, that's just a more general objection to whatever you want to be a contractarian about right. It's a good
1: one. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's a good one. I mean, I have long-standing disagreements um, about this, you know, with uh, you know, with some of my uh, you know colleagues, you know, who have developed v- very sophisticated you know accounts of contractarian political morality as applied, you know, to war. But I do stand, you know, by you know the concerns I have just um, you know articulated. Um, um the third approach is uh the, the just war in you know, a theory you know approach um that's a, a very very long you know standing in you know, a philosophical framework which you know in the west really started being developed by theologians you know in the early in the middle ages um i, I want if i may to spend a little bit of time on this um, you know in case some of your readers are not in you know, a familiar, you know, with just you war know, theory. So in the West, um, you know, the, the central puzzle, if you are a Christian, um, is is this: um, given Christ's injunction against harming, you know, other people, how can one develop an account of self-defense? Right, um it is all very well you know to say that if I'm hit you know on one cheek, I ought to turn the other cheek, nevertheless, very, very, very few people, and indeed very few Christians are absolute you know pacifists, so in the context of war, you know the challenge is to provide a justification for the permissibility of killing you know within a, a christian you know framework. And that challenge has been taken up, you know, over the course of several centuries. Um, The answer to that challenge consists in uh, arguing that a war is just all things considered, only if it meets a number of conditions, it has to have a just cause, it has to be waged by the right authority, Um, it has to be a proportionate response to the wrongdoing to which one has been subjected. and Once the war has started, there are certain rules. About what can or cannot be done, so you know the innocent who are not causally or morally responsible for the war are not legitimate targets. Soldiers are, you know, legitimate targets. There is a proportionality condition. You know, once the war has started, the war must have a reasonable chance of success, and it must be the option of last resort. Now, I wanted to spend a bit of time on this because. Um, You know, in the light of what I said at the very beginning of the conversation, that espionage is a handmaiden of war. um, At first sight, when I started thinking about espionage, I thought, well, it's easy. You know, you just apply, you know, the just war theory framework. And then you have straightforwardly, you know, an account of the permissibility of espionage. And you have it not just within war, but outside of war, you know, as well. So, straightforwardly, you could argue that an espionage operation is justified if it has a just cause, if it is proportionate, if it abides by certain norms as to who may be targeted or not, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, So, again, um, you know, the Just More Theory framework is attractive. Um, It tells us something about how to go about justifying espionage. And the thing that it tells us is that if we have any hope to justify espionage, we have to accept that um, we need to provide an account of defensive harming, you know, harming in self-defense or harming in defense of others. The problem, however, is that just war theory as I've said, is concerned with justifying killing or at any rate very serious injury to limbs and property as well as threats to life, but at the risk of pointing at the obvious, to spy and to protect one's secrets is not at all the same as to kill. So an account of the ethics of espionage must be very sensitive to this important difference, you know, between those um, domains of activity.
2: Right, and I guess that in the espionage case, it would be um, since it's so central to just war theory that there be identifiable categories like aggressor. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Who started it? Who started, in espionage, yeah. it doesn't seem like that's um, doesn't seem like that applies in espionage. Who started spying? Doesn't seem like the right kind of moral? It doesn't seem like the same kind of relevant question as it does yeah, in the war that, right? That,
1: that's good. So I think, I think you're right. Um, so, yeah, so this, this is interesting. So um, the, the contrast here, picking up on what you've just said, you know, could be framed as follows. Well, look, you know, when we start talking about the morality of war, are we not presupposing that there is a clear contrast between a state of war and a state of peace? Um, and, you know, the, the, the norms regulating war are norms for exiting a state of peace and entering a state of war. And by contrast, it seems that, um, you know, given that espionage goes on all the time.
2: um, Even among allies, it should be added. Even
1: amongst allies, it seems that the framework um, of the just war is not entirely opposite. Now, I'm very sympathetic you know to this however um, one of the, uh, the really serious philosophical and practical and legal you know challenges for uh, philosophers and philosophers of war and lawyers who have to think about war is that in many more conflicts than used to be the case certainly in the modern and contemporary era the line between war and peace is really not as hard and fast you know as we might um, as we might think um, and so if that's true um, then you know some of the worries that are articulate in the book about the ethics of espionage worries which flow precisely from the fact that espionage is an ongoing state of affairs those worries will also arise for those military conflicts which seem to be by dint of how protected they are uh, ongoing in you know, a states of affairs as well um, right
2: Fabulous. Um, so good. So we've got three, um, three accounts. Some of them are merely implicit in literature. Some are more explicit. They reveal something important. The argument is that they are deficient. So your positive account then, um, begins with an insight, um, uh, and I think this is a, a really sound methodological thought right? <laughs> that um, if, we're th- if we're looking at if we're trying to figure out the morality of espionage, we need to begin with an examination of secrecy because <laughs> that's what espionage is always about. Um, and um, more specifically, y- you argue that um, uh, members of political communities, maybe political communities themselves in some sense, um, have a right that certain kinds of information, uh, information about themselves be kept secret. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it's a pro tanto right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that right to secrecy? Because that's that seems to be the hinge on which uh, your account sort of turns. Yeah,
1: good. So before I do that, um, I think I need to um, to do a bit more work. Um, you know, to explain why I start with secrecy, and and I need to do a bit more work there because. Um, I can imagine, you know, some of your listeners might say, well, hold on. I mean, a lot of the information which intelligence agencies gather is publicly available. Information. So, you know, to use as an example, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on the twenty-fourth of February, you know, twenty twenty-two. Well, you know, Western intelligence agencies had known for months that Russia was gathering troops alongside the border. So there was nothing secret about that. It would be odd, however, you know, to describe the activities of those intelligence agencies in the months leading up to the invasion as not. being espionage or intelligence, you know, activities. Um, I mean, in a similar vein, you know, some of the information which um, intelligence agencies gather is portrayed as secret by the other side, but in fact it's not i mean the other side really wants us to have it um for example in order you know to to deceive us but if the other side really wants us to have it it's not true that intelligence agencies acting for us are in the business of getting information that the other side doesn't want us you know to have so you know the relationship between you know espionage and secrecy is a little bit more complex you know it seems to me and we might be tempted to think you know at first sight uh, n- nevertheless, I do think that uh, that relationship exists. Um, so it's true that um, a lot of the information that is gathered by intelligence agencies is open source. You know, information it's available by you know, satellite. You know, observation. You know, and so on and so forth. That of course is entirely compatible with the fact that the other side would much rather that we not have it. Um, I mean, uh, I can imagine that the scenario in which Russia, for example, might have wanted you know to hide you know the extent you know of the military strengths that um, it was willing and seemed to us to be able you know at the time you know back in February you know to uh, you know to deploy. Um, moreover. Um what that publicly available information tells us about the other side might not be something that the other side wants us to know um and finally, when the other side does want us to have that information when it does so in order to deceive us um well what we are in the business of really trying to find out is the real information that they do not want us you know to have so secrecy really you know is Absolutely central, and yet, it hasn't really been looked at, um, you know, by the scholarship. On espionage. I mean, it's been looked at in a lot of other contexts, which are germane, but not specifically, you know, in the service of scrutinizing whether espionage is morally permissible. So what I want to argue is that um, citizens of a political community have a presumptive right that some important information about themselves, qua citizens, so relating to national security, political agency, to their economy, as well as, in some cases, to their private lives, be treated as secret by the other side in the context of foreign policy. So that's how the argument goes.
2: Right, and um, so let me ask about the the next the next step then. Um, because I do want to hear about the, uh, um, the basis for that right. I mean, there is – you've got these sort of two, um, two reasons why uh, uh, we might have this right. But once you est- – the, the, the argument – the way the argument works is that once you establish that members of the political community have that right, that certain information be kept secret, that's the basis for the defense – of espionage as not merely permissible and here's the part that I, th- I thought was was really uh, intriguing and and very very interesting about the book because ultimately you are, ultimately you argue that Um, certain espionage activities are not only permissible, they are also obligatory. So can you fill in some of those gaps?
1: Well, first, it might be helpful um, if I say a little bit more, um, if that's okay with you, uh, about justifications for the right to secrecy, uh, to political secrecy. So, I mean, there are essentially two. um, uh, Well, I I deploy four in the book, but the main ones um, are national security and democratic agency. So, I I mean, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time, you know, national security because it seems to me fairly obvious um, that there is a presumptive right, um, you know, held, for example, by you know American citizens. In fact, I should say American residents or British residents or French, you know, residents that um, you know the codes um, giving access to uh, weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons, not be. Disclosed, you know, to all and sundry. Um, I mean, the political agency, you know, argument might not be as obvious as the national security, you know, argument, but I, I do think it's a, it's a powerful interest that we have in political agency, which is protected by the right. to um, uh, to secrecy. So uh, secrecy quite often protects the integrity of democratic procedures and um, thereby of democratic agency. Um, It also, secrecy, protects um, individual citizens' ability to bring the political plans to completion. So let me give you an example to illustrate both the procedural point and the substantive you know, point. So procedurally, um, in a democratic community, we all have an interest in political participation and in there being a formal connection between our individual preferences and political decisions. We all have an interest, in other words, in voting, you know, in the context of national you know, elections in particular. And so suppose that my interest in casting a vote and in that vote being appropriately counted um, is important to be protected enough to be protected by a right to vote. But also let's imagine a right to vote electronically if I'm not able to go to the polling station. Well that interest is important enough to be protected by a right that the cyber security measures taken by my government to ensure the integrity of the online voting system not be disclosed to all and sundry. Um, so that's a procedural you know, point. But also, you know, substantively, um, and particularly in the context of um, foreign relations, secrecy can act as a protective cloak, you know, of a uh, uh the courses of action which if they were made fully public at the outset would simply not happen. So for example the Ursula peace process, you know, which led to mutual recognition by Israel and the PLO in nineteen ninety-three did start as a back channel process of negotiations under the auspices of the Norwegian authorities. Um so the role of back channels is to allow officials from political communities in conflict to negotiate with one another you know without fear um, more more immediately without coming to harm um, so, you know, these are different ways in which political secrecy protects important you know, political interests. So, once we've established that, I mean, assuming that the argument stands up you know, to scrutiny, well, then we have to um, ascertain whether and when and why espionage, which again consists in seeking to procure those secrets as well as defend our own, is morally permissible.
2: that's shipstation.com with the code pod fabulous um, and so the book once you make that um, once you make that argumentative move that you know espionage activities including the counterintelligence activities are about protecting secrets and particularly um protecting secrets or acquiring information that could help to thwart Basic rights uh, violations, and so if there's a real strong moral reason to protect secrets and to thwart those violations, and if espionage is an indispensable tool for doing those things, it looks like it looks like we've got the basis of a uh, of a pretty robust uh, moral defense, not only of the permissibility, but um, in, under certain conditions of the obligatoriness uh, of espionage. Um, but I guess the devil's in the details, right? Yes, yes.
1: Right. <laughs> So you've given a wonderfully clear summary, you know, of the, uh, you know, of the basic position. Um, so let me now try, you know, to, to defend the basic position, um, you know, in, in a bit more detail. So let's start, you know, with a claim that um, you know, espionage, uh, for the sake of um, protecting fundamental moral rights, is morally permissible. So in my work in general, I like to proceed by way of analogies. Now it, it's a form of reasoning which is a bit risky because you know, analogies are not always you know, illuminating, and they don't always take the place of, you know, more fully developed, you know, arguments. Sometimes, however, they are, you know, illuminating. And so the analogy that I always come back to here, you know, is this: you know, if if someone, let's call him Blogs, you know, tries to kill me without justification whatsoever. Well, I am morally justified, I'm assuming for the sake of argument, in killing blogs in self-defense. Now, if that claim is true, then surely I am morally justified in trying to work out how many guns blogs has at his disposal. I mean, that surely is not privileged information which blogs is entitled to prevent me from acquiring You know, at the point at which, you know, it's absolutely clear to me that he will attempt to kill me with at least some of those guns. Um, And the point carries over, it seems to me, by analogy to espionage in the context of war. It is not restricted. You know to war. So, as I argue, you know in um, in the book, you know if we imagine a country which I call Blue, and which embarks on a policy of um, undermining foreign leaders without warrant, uh, for example, Green's leaders on the grounds that Green leaders refuse to align themselves to Blue's national interests, and if we imagine that um, Blue's activities would be seriously harmful you know to green's populations well insofar as blue acts unjustly green but justifiably appropriate of information which blue lacks a right to keep secret about blue's designs information which green needs in order to tailor its particular response so you know the the case for permissible espionage uh, again, you know, with a view solely to uh, protect, you know, fundamental moral rights, more precisely to thwart violations of those rights, um, the claim that espionage to that end is permissible seems fairly straightforward, you know, to me. Yeah.
2: Yeah and and but once it's once the argument says that it's it's permissible in the straightforward way and I think that you're you're right about that then it looks like it's just a short step to it being mandatory in certain kinds of yes. ways, right yes yes it is
1: um, it is though um, that it is um, so what I find interesting is that um, the point has been made before. You know, the point that espionage is morally mandatory, and it's been made very forcefully by you know Sun Tzu, um, whose um, magisterial you know treatise, The Art of War, ends with a chapter on espionage. You know, on the one hand, uh, but also by Thomas Hobbes. Um, my defense of the duty to spy is very different, you know, from Stunzou's, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and Hobbes. So, for Hobbes, you know, the prince is under a duty to spy because that's his job, you know, as a sovereign. Um, it's in his interest you know, to do so. He will not survive, you know, as a sovereign under the terms of the contract. Um, he has passed with citizens unless he protects, you know, the latter. And his duty to gather the information he needs in order to protect citizens, you know, is grounded in a in that prior, in a prudential duty. for Sun Tzu, um, the sovereign is also under a duty to spy, but very interestingly, in my view, the, the duty is owed to the sovereign soldiers and citizens. So the sovereign owes it to his soldiers and citizens to shorten the war you know, as much as possible. And in order to shorten the war, and indeed also in order to minimize the damage that the war does to them, um, the sovereign has to, and it's a very strong has to, it's a very strong must, he has to procure the information that he needs and if spying is the way to do it well then so be it in fact Sun Tzu goes as far as to say in um, in a passage that um, stands out, you know, in the book it seems to me, um, insofar as it has a hint of pesos that you don't find elsewhere you know, in the treaty, Sun Tzu says, the prince who does not spy for the sake of his soldiers Um, and subjects is, and here I quote, devoid of humanity. It's a very strong, it's a very strong statement. I don't disagree, you know, with Sun Tzu. I I disagree with Hobbes, uh, you know, for reasons articulated earlier when we discussed contractarian morality. You know, Hobbesian morality is contractarian. Um, I don't subscribe, you know, to contractarian morality. Um, Sun Tzu is not a contractarian. And I say this at the risk of, you know, being anachronistic. But nevertheless, um, you know, to reiterate, this is important. You know, Sun Tzu grounds, you know, the duty to spy, you know, into what the sovereign owes morally at the bar of humanity to his subjects and soldiers. My defense... um, is somewhat different. Um, So I argue that um, although it is true that Green is under a duty to spy, for the sake of its soldiers and citizens, um, the duty is not just a duty to ensure that the war is shorter than it could be, um, and therefore less harmful to them. Um, It is also rooted, it seems to me, in a duty which um, a leadership has to its soldiers, citizens and officials, not to expose them to the risk of committing a serious moral wrong. Um, when we go to war, but the point also applies when we think, for example, about the imposition of economic sanctions or other measures short of war, you know, we impose harms on a wide range of people, not all of whom are our fellow citizens. Um, and there is always a risk that those harms will be wrongful. You know, harm. So there is always a risk, for example, that the military leadership will order you know, a battalion or you know, uh, drone pilots to attack targets which in fact are not you know, legitimate targets. And it seems to me to be a serious dereliction of duty if that military leadership fails to procure information that would tell them that the target is not a legitimate target. It's a dereliction of duty not merely vis-a-vis the direct victims you know, of the targeting but vis-à-vis those soldiers you know themselves you know, and uh, the less highly ranked you know, officials as well. So the, the duty is owed um, you know, by Green, in my recurrent example, you know, to Green citizens and soldiers um, as grounded with Sun Tzu in a duty to spare them from the suffering of war or harmful for foreign policy decisions. It is grounded um, in a duty to spare them from the risks of wrongful moral agency. And that risk is overlooked, you know, in the literature, but it is also duty which Green owes to Blue's innocent civilians, um, which otherwise, you know, um, who otherwise would be subject to wrongful harming.
2: That's fabulous. So I take that to be uh, sort of the, the, the core argument. And then the rest of the book... Um, is devoted to particular tactics or forms or sites uh, of espionage. Um, And so, you know, I'll just mention to the readers that this is a, a, a really, you know, I don't know if comprehensive is the right word, but, you know, we, there's a lot going on in the book when it comes to the various kinds of tactics. Um, and so um, we're just going to pick and choose here. Uh, so there's a chapter on e- uh, on um, economic espionage I'm going to set aside uh, for the sake of time, although it's it was very intriguing. Um, I want to ask about your analysis of deception. And then also your analysis of treason. So you argue that there are some forms of deception that are practiced in the course of espionage activities that are defensible even when they harm those who aren't acting wrongfully um, so can you uh which again i i, I was there was an eye-opening kind of argument for me um so uh can you run us through the deception argument and then i want to follow up with the question about treason which has a similar kind of structure
1: that's right so yeah. um uh, you know, espionage, um, on you know, some definitions, um, in fact, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, you know, definition is uh, inherently, you know, dece- deceitful. Um, and in fact, um, Kant, who is one of the very few moral and political philosophers in the history of political thought, but from Hobbes, um, you know, to have talked about espionage, loathes it. You know, espionage. Uh, he he dubs it that I quote. Infernal art. Note the contrast. You know, with uh, Sun Tzu, we have two very different kinds of pesos. You know, here and and he loses um, espionage, that infernal art, precisely because you know to practice espionage is to uh, to deceive. Um, now there is a, a very uh, well developed, really nice, really rich, you know, literature in moral philosophy um, about Kant's arguments on. Lying in particular, but more generally the ethics of uh, of deception and in the book, I uh, avail myself you know, of that literature in order to, as you said, um, argue that um, deception in the service of espionage and counter uh, intelligence is sometimes morally permissible. in fact, I even argue that it is sometimes you know morally mandatory. Um, now, I, I want to make um, a broader methodological point, um, which I was hoping to make at some point, but now I think it's a very good time, you know, yeah. to do it. Um, so, um, in the work that I've, I've done, um, particularly uh, the work that I did a long time ago on the rights that we have of our own body, more recently, uh, the work that I've done on the ethics of war and ethics of espionage, um, I... I, I conduct, you know, what we in the discipline would call, you know, applied ethics. Um, but the applied ethics I try to do um, does not m- simply consist in, you know, taking a framework, so say Kantian arguments, you know, about lying, and simply applying that framework to the applied issue at hand here espionage. What I try to do is show how by applying that framework to a specific concrete practical issue, we learn things about that framework, you know, in return. So it's a it's a back and forth, you know, move. You know, if if you will, you know between you know the foundational and uh, the more practical, and I was very aware um, of proceeding you know in that way in you know, in the chapter on deception, because what I discovered uh, when I started writing the chapter is that um, well, of course you know we have Kant's famous example of the murderer at the door, so the murderer turns up on my doorstep, asks me. Uh, to tell him the whereabouts of his intended victim. Am I morally allowed to lie? Kant says I'm not. Uh, most people say I am. Fine. But then when I started thinking about different kinds of deception and uh, different kinds of intelligence in you know, operation, uh, strategies, um, I discovered that there are many variations on Kant's initial an you know, example of the murderer at the door which in turn tell us something about the ethics of deception that we might not have been aware of you know before so my hope um, is that what I say about deception in the book the deception inherent in espionage and counterintelligence operations might be helpful when we think about deception in other contexts you know as well so that's the general you know methodology point I wanted to make um, now, I argue, and I'm not alone in this, um, that um, uh, intelligence professionals, uh, their leaders, and the citizens on whose behalf they act, who are relevantly similar to the murderer at the door, have forfeited in a, their claim not to be deceived. Um, depending on the nature of their wrongdoing, they have forfeited the claim not to be lied to, they have forfeited the claim not to be misled you know, by implicator, they have forfeited the claim um, uh, not to have information concealed, you know, from them. These are the easy cases. These are the people who are relevantly similar um, uh, to the murderer at the door. Now, your question was more probing, more penetrating. <laughs> it said, well, you know, what about the innocent? You know, what about what about those who are embroiled you in, in the deception operation but who have nothing to do with the war with the wrongful you know foreign policy conducted by their regime now this is uh, you know one point at which we learn a lot you know from the ethics of war um in that body of literature there is a well developed set of arguments which um Seeks to show that under certain conditions, um, one may harm the innocent, provided the harm is a a foreseen, though unintentional, side effect, you know, of one's actions. And so here, I use that body of thought um, to show that. Although some innocent people will be harmed by deception operations, so long as the harm is a collateral damage, if you will, you know, of um, uh, you know, the harm that is done to legitimate targets, then subject to in particular constraints of proportionality, uh, the operation of deception is morally justified.
2: Wonderful. Um, so we're we're you've been very generous with your time, um, and I want. And we're, we're we're running short here, but there are two issues that I, I wanted to uh, invite you to um, uh, to speak to that come up in the book. Um, one is the treason chapter, and um, uh, the the idea again is that in some cases, you know, that that there is a mortal, there is a moral category in your view of mandatory. Treason. Um, But I wanted also to make sure uh, that we we get a chance to talk about the last chapter of the book, which is about – Mass surveillance. Um, so I don't know if, if I'm if if it's too much of a task to ask you to sort of uh, uh, in the time uh, that we have to sort of say a little bit about treason, but then I want to um, uh, uh, hear more about okay. the mass surveillance argument. Okay. Is that yeah, okay? that's
1: pretty fine. So so um, I'll, I'll be quick on treason. Though I'm very glad that you ask about this because um, m- you know much of espionage relies on someone from the other side being willing to commit. What her side would regard as treason to commit for our sake, what her side would regard as treason and would punish her for it, indeed, what we would regard as treason if it is done against us you know by one of us um so treason really is at the heart you know of espionage, which is why I wanted to um you know to write about it um it is. Regarded as a heinous, you know, crime, um, one of the most serious breaches of loyalty in the political domain, you know, that uh, there is. Uh, It also goes hand in hand with personal betrayal, you know, the betrayal of one's friends, one's colleagues, you know, one's spouses, one's children. Um, It's a very highly costly thing to do, you know, for the traitor. Um, Though I do believe that it is sometimes at any rate morally permissible. So, uh, very briefly, you know, to to betray um, is to act against the ties of loyalty which bind us to others in this particular context to our fellow citizens. I argue in the book, however, that our loyalty to our fellow citizens or fellow intelligence officers um, cannot trump the protection of fundamental moral rights. You know, the latter has precedence of a you know the former um, we would readily make that claim um, if we thought about the ties of loyalty that bind members of a crime family, you know, together. Um, again, by analogical reasoning, uh, we should, you know, be willing to face up, um, you know, to the possibility that treason is morally permissible for the reason just given. As I also argue in the book, um, I do believe that um, there are. Circumstances in which um, it is um, a duty of good Samaritanism that we are under a duty to do our share to protect victims of violations of fundamental, you know, moral rights, and sometimes you know the way in which we discharge that duty is by passing on, you know, to the other side information that that side needs um, in order to protect those people. Um, Uh, We are also under a reparative duty um, when one is embedded in one state's unjust structures to correct for one's complicity in the moral violations that that regime commits. And again, one way to discharge that reparative duty can sometimes take the form of informational treason. So that's the core of my argument in that chapter.
2: Very good. Very good. Um, So let's move on to the surveillance, um, which you find objectionable. Um, uh, But the reason – again, the reason I thought – the central reason – there are lots of reasons. But the reason I thought was very interesting, um, mass surveillance um, is uh, objectionable um, when it is objectionable um, because it entrenches unfair inequalities. Good. Can you tell us a bit about that to, to wrap up?
1: Yes. So, so um, most people a lot of people, when they think about um, what might be objection to mass surveillance, will immediately think, oh well it's a violation of privacy um as implied by the word you know surveil um and I agree that it sometimes is a violation of privacy though not always and I want to show that um, even when it is not you know a violation of privacy we have good reasons to be very deeply concerned about it uh, on grounds of uh, unfair you know inequalities and the argument here goes something like this uh, practices of mass surveillance currently rely on algorithmic you know Processes and there are very good reasons to believe that those algorithmic processes, in turn, are parasitic on existing unfair inequalities. So as a result, you know, decisions which are made on the basis of those processes uh, worsen uh, and trench, you know, those uh, those inequalities. Um, so the argument, you know, stands up uh, if we can show uh, why and how you know algorithmic uh, processes are parasitic on existing, you know, inequalities. Um, There is a a mushrooming, as it were, literature, you know, on this, um, you know, at the moment, uh, which which I use, you know, in the book. Um, The general claim really is this, that, you know, algorithms are, only as good as the data which they process um, is, and um, the data on which they are trained, you know, as well. And so, you know, when the data is incomplete, corrupted, um, false errors can lead to mistaken descriptions of, um, of responsibility. And that data is even more likely to be incomplete, corrupted, um, uh, false when it tracks, you know, existing um, existing inequalities. Um, so you know um let me give you let me give you an example um, an important issue is that of what algorithms have been trying to identify as a normal pattern and deviations you know from that pattern um and of what probabilistic inferences uh, can be drawn you know from that information so one of the most interesting um you know bits of evidence as it were you know which I found um it was a 2017 survey, you know, conducted by the Pew Research Center uh, in the US on patterns of gun ownership. Um, So they correlate with political affiliation, patterns of habitat, uh, gender, and ethnicity. So with that in mind, a white American male who owns several guns, who lives in the rural South, and who identifies as a staunch anti-federal state Republican, will fit very nicely what you may call a normal pattern of gun ownership in that country a youngish American of Middle Eastern descent who lives in New York and does not record a party political affiliation will not fit Now, suppose that the algorithm has been trained to identify not entirely unreasonably, actually, you know, attacks on civilians by young men of Middle Eastern descent as terroristic attacks, whereas attacks by white supremacists are recorded as mass shootings. Well, it's very easy to see why a red flag might be issued if a 30-year-old New Yorker who was born in Morocco suddenly buys guns, has a truck, and posts anti-West pro-ISIS messages on Instagram. But not if the messages are posted by a long-term resident of Colorado who buys a bunch of assault weapons, hires a truck, and posts violent, anti-federal, and racist messages on Twitter. Now, I would like to hope that, you know, in the light of, um, you know, recent uh, events, not just in the U.S. but in Europe as well, um, intelligence agencies have uh, done some work, you know, on their algorithms. But nevertheless, the example shows what is problematic, you know, uh, at the moment, you know, about. Uh, practices of mass surveillance which relies which rely sorry on those algorithmic you know processes
2: well that's a a, a, a fabulous i mean a very illustrative uh, uh example um so uh it, cecile we're, we are we're out of time but i i, I really want to thank you uh not only f- uh for joining me uh for the for the podcast uh, but just r- but for writing just uh you know a really fabulous book you know it's um let me say this uh you know, they're all. I like all kinds of philosophy books. You know, philosophy books that try to solve problems in new ways. Philosophy books that are wrong, but in ways that are innovative and interesting. Um, but yours is is a is a, is a different kind of um, philosophy book that I like, which is a the kind of book that shows me that there's philosophy where I hadn't noticed it before. Right.
1: Right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That, that actually means a lot. Um, so really, you know, thank you very much, you know, for this and for having me.
2: Oh, it's it's really been a pleasure. Um, so listeners, uh, thank you for joining uh, Cecile and I uh, for our discussion. Um, to remind you, we've been talking about a fabulous new book by uh, Cecile Fobb. It's titled Spying Through a Glass Darkly. The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. um, And it's just been published with Oxford University Press. Uh, I want to thank you, listener, for uh, tuning in uh, to new books in philosophy. Bye for now.